30 years ago this month, John A. Costello, Taoiseach of the Interparty Government, received a letter from the Catholic hierarchy. The bishops objected to the new mother and child scheme which had been brought before the Dáil by Dr Noel Brown, Minister for Health. The scheme was in direct opposition to the rights of the family, they said, and could be a ready-made instrument for future totalitarian aggression. The state had no right to intervene in the affairs of the family, except in a subsidiary capacity where, for instance, parents were neglectful or indigent. The ensuing debate was to lead to the resignation of the Minister for Health, Dr Brown, and many people ascribed the subsequent fall of the inter-party government directly to the controversy. Certainly the publication by Dr Brown of the private correspondence between the government and hierarchy left many citizens wondering about the frequency of such private pressures on democratic government. Others maintain that the Catholic Church, representing 95% of the people, would have to intervene where it felt legislation could damage the fabric of Irish society. But what was it in the scheme itself that was to arouse such strong fears? I spoke to J.H. White, author of Church and State in Modern Ireland. Well, the Mother and Child Scheme was an attempt to implement the 1947 Health Act. That act was an enabling act. In other words, it gave the government power to set up a scheme to deal with the health and welfare of mothers and of children up to the age of 16. It did not in itself provide such services. That had to be done subsequently by regulation. And when Dr Brown became Minister for Health in 1948, one of the jobs, one of the things which he had to tackle was to draft the regulations to implement that section of the Health Act 1947. In 1947 did the hierarchy have objections to the original act itself? Yes they did. This was not generally known at the time and Dr Brown himself seems not to have known about it uh, until quite late on in 1950. Uh, But they did in fact have doubts about the original act, they felt that it was giving the state too much power. How did the hierarchy's objections to the scheme dovetail with those of the medical profession? Well, there was certainly an overlap here. Uh, The doctors were also uneasy about um, too much extension of state power. They didn't want to be put in a position where they were really just bureaucrats having to carry out government regulations. Um, Some people would also uh, consider that they were a bit concerned about their their income, that uh, this uh, proposed mother and child scheme um, might damage those doctors who were in private practice because it was proposed that it was to be based on the dispensary doctors. So there were hard bread and butter issues at uh, at stake as well as uh, as points of principle. But certainly there was an overlap between what the doctors were objecting to and what the hierarchy objected to. How important do you think the uh, question of the means test was in the whole crisis? Uh, Well, it was one of a number of issues. The point was this, that the proposed mother and child scheme was to be free for all sections of the population, regardless of how rich or poor they were. And this was one example of the undue encroachment of state power which the hierarchy was complaining about. They wouldn't have minded, it seemed, if the scheme had been confined to the the poorer part of the population, people who couldn't be expected to, to... 
pay for adequate maternity and child welfare by themselves. Uh, So it was an issue, but it was only one of several um, aspects uh, of the question. But for the author of the scheme, Dr Noel Brown, the means test was the fundamental crux for the objections of both the hierarchy of the medical profession. The mother and child scheme was a wonderful advance in, in, in Irish health. Um, it was excellent in this way, that, it, that it, it introduced the principle of the no means test. Now the no means test is, is, is something that's still with us to this day, 30 years later. But the means test, to me, politically, I, I, I felt that I didn't want to discriminate between people. To me, there's only the, the sick, there's no sick rich and sick poor, the sick people, and everybody should get exactly the same standard of health care. Therefore, I don't want a means test in any health service. My experience, I talked to the British uh, Bevan and his health scheme, talked to them about the whole business principles of health control and it was their case that in fact means tests are administratively very clumsy very difficult very costly uh, and uh, inefficient and i think that's what's being found at the present time if you talk to anybody about cards and who's eligible who's not and so on uh, that's what is being found at the present time now the third thing is as a doctor I had been in practice, as you know, before that. I found as a doctor that where there were two, where there was a means test, there were two standards. There was was one standard for the wealthy, and there was a lesser quality standard for the less wealthy and the poor. Now, uh, I was uh, particularly anxious to eliminate this this distinction between the the poor and the rich in our health services. May I say finally that uh, I also uh, had the experience of working in, in the tuberculosis scheme, which of course is free, no means test. Equally, the fever hospital f- schemes, which were free and no means test. Now, the important thing about them was not only that there was no means test, but they were so efficient. We have now elimer- eliminated, through the operation of these sc- infectious diseases uh, schemes, uh, we have eliminated tuberculosis and most infectious fevers. I, I brought the proposals before the government and that's on the records of the cabinet and I brought two proposals because I knew it was a peculiar cabinet we were involved in with a very right-wing Fine Gael party and I brought two proposals bef- to them and, and, and they consider those two proposals I don't recall the date but it's on the records I say and the two proposals one was a scheme with the means test and the other was a scheme with no means test and I told them that the implications of the Two, obviously one was going to be very costly and the other was one which would have a limit of some kind, a means limit. And they considered these things and then at the end of the discussion, uh, Mr Norton, the Labour leader at that time, said to me, I remember his words, well, no, which do you want? And I said, I want the no means test scheme. So then they turned to Mr Costler and he said, yes. Another thing, he said, you're not going to let the doctors have uh, uh, the means test, are you? But anyway, he turned to Mr. Costello then and he said, I think we should have the no-means-test scheme. Uh, obviously, my party was in favour, Mr. McBride was in favour of the uh, no-means-test, and they were all very proud of it, uh, had boasted about it in, in the, on the records of the newspapers, that's all seen there. And we uh, 
then agreed, and there is a formal uh, cabinet minute to the effect that I be given the money, that the money be voted, that the scheme, I draw up the scheme, and that money was made available for that purpose. It's in the Book of Estimates. It can be verified in the Book of Estimates that money was, was uh, made available for the proposed scheme, that it should be free, no means as to mothers in respect of motherhood, gynecology, maternity, and all that kind of thing, and children up to the age of 16 years. No bills, no doctor's bills, no chemist's bills, no hospital's bills. It was a wonderful proposition. I would have been very proud of it gone through. Dr. Brown issued the draft mother and child scheme in the summer of 1950. And at that time, he was negotiating solely with the doctors with the Irish Medical Association. In October 1950, he was suddenly informed that the hierarchy disliked the scheme also. At that point, he was unaware that the hierarchy had previously had doubts about the original 1947 Act. Uh, so to him, this came as a surprise. On the 10th of October, uh, Dr. Brown had an interview with the Archbishop of Dublin in which he discussed the various objections which the, the hierarchy had to the scheme. He went away from that meeting believing that he had satisfied the bishops. Uh, the bishops, on the other hand, uh, or Dr. McQuaid in particular, uh, went away believing that uh, the scheme still required fundamental revision. And for several months, they continued at cross-purposes until the following March. Uh, the reason for this appears to have been that Dr. Brown saw the Irish Medical Association as his primary enemy. He was intent on winning his uh, argument with the Irish Medical Association, and he seems just to have sort of switched off, if you like, uh, to other potential sources of disagreement. Dr. J. H. White. Dr. Cornelius Lucy, a junior member of the hierarchy at the time of the controversy, strongly opposed the scheme, and in a sermon in 1951, he asked the rhetorical question, what demand was there from the public for a free-for-all mother and child health service until the scheme was suggested and proposed and pushed by propaganda paid for out of public funds by the department itself? I asked him what were the hierarchy's objections to the scheme. The bishop's main objections to the mother and child scheme were that the, it, the scheme was monopolistic and bureaucratic. Uh, in other words, it was something which concentrated in the hands of the, or under the control of the Department of Health, uh, the, um, both maternity services and uh, mother and uh, children's services. How much did the hierarchy's objections dovetail with that of the medical profession at the time? In practice, they dovetail to a very considerable extent, but and, uh, from the point of view, shall I say, of principle, uh, they didn't. The hierarchy's general principle was uh, two things. First of all, that there should be liberty of choice, freedom of choice for the patient in regard to the doctor. And uh, secondly, uh, that uh, the uh, medical profession shouldn't be socialised, it shouldn't be uh, under the control of the civil service of the, de of the uh, Department for Health. Now, uh, the medical uh, 
Uh, and thirdly, of course, that the, in order to ensure the free choice for the, for the, the individual patient, person, one had to have a choice of doctor, of course, and a choice of hospitals. Now, in order to have the choice of doctor and the choice of hospitals, you had to have some, you had, had to have both doctors and hospitals outside the state uh, circle, and that meant you had to have voluntary or independent hospitals. Can I ask you, in relation to the means test, the hierarchy favoured the means test and said that uh, only 10% of parents were necessitous in this area. Do you still agree with that position? I'd be very surprised if the hierarchy said there were only 10% of parents necessitous in that area. They said it would not be sound social policy to impose a state medical service on the whole community on the pretext of relieving the necessitous 10% from the so-called indignity of the means test. The I have no remembrance of that, really. Mm. What the hierarchy would have done is they would have divided the, the uh, people into three categories. First of all, there are those who are, uh, who are shall I say, necessitous. Uh, then uh, those who could contribute but couldn't. That would be, shall I say, the middle classes generally. And uh, thirdly, uh, those who uh, could very well afford to meet all their expenses. Now, the hierarchy on principle said the state doesn't, shouldn't provide for people if they can't provide for themselves. Now, that, in practice, I suppose, involved a means test of some sort. What about the, um, the hierarchy's objections on the issue of the antenatal services? Certain practices and certain practitioners uh, would uh, counsel uh, women that, well, you shouldn't have uh, any baby or shouldn't have any more babies. In other words, that uh, they could uh, be a service uh, that would or could be used for promoting uh, birth control practices. When the bishops wanted to get the uh, the act, uh, or the, the bill rather, which was being proposed, when they wanted to get it and um, it's like the, I suppose, like the, the Family Planning Act and all the rest. And if, if you want to get, to, to, to try and get your point of view across and into the legislation, you have to let the people know beforehand what you think. Otherwise, you're putting them in the position of, of uh, afterwards of uh, condemning it, and they're saying to you, well, you never condemned it. When uh, you never told us anything about it until uh, the uh, bill became an act, and uh, that's not fair, and it wouldn't be fair either. Can I just ask you, at the time, um, John A. Costello said in the Dáil that he was sorry that the correspondence between the hierarchy and the government had become public. Would you agree with that? Oh, I'm always for publishing everything. Yeah. But you see, what had happened there was that uh, as, uh, I, I wasn't involved in that, you see, then, so I don't know. But as I understood it there, uh, Dr. Noel Brown published letters which were not intended for publication. So uh, that, that, uh, 
that's an, uh, if I wrote to you expecting or believing that uh, the letter wouldn't be published, then it shouldn't be published. Because if, if you take, you might uh, take a different uh, line one way or another if the letter were to be published. Now, if I were, as I say, I think if we, the bishops, were dealing with the government openly, that is, knowing that all our correspondence would be, and our, our statements would be published, we would have gone off first and foremost and, and stated, we want a good health act. And we want that for the people who really need it. And therefore, what we are criticizing is certain parts of your act, not the act, but certain parts of it, which we think uh, either should be dropped or should be amended. Now, if it were put that way, uh, then um, there wouldn't be confrontation unless the government uh, went ahead with the bill as it was proposed. If I were to ask you what uh, alternative mother and child scheme would you have been happy with at that time? Well, I can only say that I was happy with the mother and child scheme that came. But the bishops were not alone in their opposition to the scheme. It isn't really simple in this way that there was objections from the med the doctors objected, you see, because it's an enormous vested interest, the the baby business, there's no, no tremendous amount of money involved, the consultant side particularly, and they objected to the fact that they would become simply state employees and paid in the ordinary way, and uh, that it uh, they would operate on a capitation scale system. So they were obviously very anxious that the scheme shouldn't go through because they, it was, they were obviously fighting for their own uh, means test type scheme. They then, uh, I understand, had some con contact with the then Archbishop of Dublin, Dr. McQuaid. The opposition was slow in developing but it didn't come to a head really until the famous letter that came to the cabinet uh, uh, saying that from the Dr McQuaid saying that on behalf of the bishops that we could not have the scheme, we might not have the scheme. This uh, was on the 10th of October? Yes, prior to that, yes, prior to that I had been invited to the, to the Dr McQuaid's house, the bishop, Archbishop's house, and at that meeting we had considered a number of issues and I made concessions on two important issues there because they didn't interfere with the central issue to me and that was the means test. I was, as long as I preserved that I, I was quite happy to make concessions and compromises on other issues which I considered important but at the same time I compromised on those. And when I left the house that time, his house, the palace that time, uh, I was quite happy that I had met his objections. I had offered uh, to the people in, and to the bishops, I said that I will, there was one particular clause they were worried about, and I said I will draft the bill and send it to you for your approval, or if you wish to, you can draft a bill and send it to me 
for my consideration. And thirdly, if you wish, the issue is not the most important one. I will drop it altogether. So to that extent, I was perfectly prepared to make the compromises on anything except the central issue, and that was the means test. And in the means test, what I did was I went to the government, I said, you've made this decision already. Now, I resented the fact early on, I think I told you sometime, I did resent the fact that on one occasion Sean McKeown had come back from the Archbishop's Palace and had told us that we couldn't have an adoption bill because the Archbishop wouldn't permit it. Now, I resented that. I was young at the time and I believed that, I believed in this idea of uh, the democratic power of a cabinet, that it must be listened to everybody, obviously, but must do that. But you make the final decision. We'd made a final decision, and I resented the interference of anybody outside the cabinet in this final decision of the cabinet. So I said to the cabinet, you've made this decision, and I will only alter my attitudes or reconsider my attitudes on instructions from you, but I will not do it on instructions from anybody outside the cabinet. And that, to me, was a very important issue. Not just the health scheme, which was important, but to me, the, 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 the big issue that then involved was a repetition of the McKeown episode, which I was not prepared to tolerate. That was outside interference by the Catholic hierarchy in our affairs here. You feel that the Cabinet gave in out of fear? Oh, I have no doubt at all. The cabinet w was frightened, as you know. I th when the famous letter came, I, w I went round the, the table uh, that Mr. Costello said to me, "We accept the letter." I said, "We don't accept. I don't accept the letter." And uh, he th we then ran, went round, uh, I, and he said, "That's agreed." I said, "No, I'd like it, each person to make up their own mind." So we went round. As I asked each of them, "Do you agree? Do you agree?" That? And so on. And eventually, each one of them said they. Uh, the, um, only one demar, Mike McKees, said he thought it was unfair that it should be, they should be allowed to interfere like this. Uh, Mr. Uh, Sean McKeown attacked me for even asking the question. The bishops had made their decision clear and they were accepting it. Now, uh, while I think that was, uh, well, that was, was very reprehensible on their part as adult serious politicians, I think it was even worse on the part of Mr. De Valera later on insofar as he was a head of a, a single-party government, and he equally bowed to the uh, diktat of the, of the hierarchy in his subsequent mother and infant scheme, which, as you know, only referred to children up to six, six weeks, not 16 years. In your own resignation speech uh, in the Dáil, you said that as a Catholic you would unequivocally accept what the hierarchy were saying. Yes. What did you mean by that? Yes. I think that in this you have to bear in mind the society we live in and the most recent thing, the contraception and divorce and the Irish solution to the Irish problem, attitude of successive cabinets here, that the, the problem for a politician is to try to survive and to establish certain points of view. I was determined that I was not going to implement the bishop's scheme or any scheme with the, with, with the means test unless it had been considered by cabinet and I had made my decision arising out of that consideration. So I decided that I would continue the fight, I would accept their ruling, which was, I'm sure, the correct ruling at that time, 
uh, they as the hierarchy had a right to make any ruling they wanted to and as a Catholic I had to accept that it was their ruling and therefore the correct Catholic ruling on that issue but I then at the same time declined to implement their scheme and I resigned and the resignation then led to the fall of the government and I've subsequently fought that election. For about five months um, they went on across purposes. Finally, in March, Dr. Brown realized he was not going to reach an accommodation with the Irish Medical Association, and he decided he was going to go ahead with the scheme anyway. Uh, he announced this fact, and it was at that point that Dr. McQuay got in touch with him again and uh, said that he had had that he was still totally unsatisfied um, with the mother and child scheme. And this uh, appears to have astonished Dr. Brown. But he did at this point, in March 51, he did at this point realize that he didn't just have the doctors on his hands, but he had the hierarchy to square as well. His immediate reaction seems to have been, during the second half of March, was in effect to split the bishops. So Dr. Brown appealed to the hierarchy as a whole for a ruling as to whether his scheme really was contrary to social Catholic social teaching or not. But when it came to the pinch, when it came to the crunch, at that meeting, the hierarchy unanimously supported uh, Dr. McQuaid's line. And uh, following that, uh, Dr. Brown resigned. Do you think that the defeat of the scheme would have been possible if there hadn't been divisions within the Cabinet itself and particularly between Dr Brown's own leader, Sean McBride, and himself? I think it's, it's doubtful, frankly. Uh, yes, Dr Brown was fighting on several fronts at once. Uh, he was uh, fighting the Irish Medical Association, the uh, official spokesman for the doctors. Uh, he was uh, fighting the bishops. Uh, he was also um, on bad terms with several of his cabinet colleagues who were unhappy about the way he was handling the whole thing. And on a quite different issue concerned with internal clan politics, uh, he was at odds with his own party leader, Sean McBride. So he was in a weak position. And when it came to the crunch, it, it did mean that the cabinet was not prepared to back him. If circumstances had been different, if uh, Dr. Brown had been going forward with a scheme which had the unanimous and enthusiastic approval of the cabinet. Well, I doubt if things would ever have got to that stage in the first place. Dr. McQuaid knew all along, from October 1950 onwards, he knew that several of Dr. Brown's cabinet colleagues were not happy with the way Dr. Brown was handling things. In other words, Dr. McQuaid knew he was dealing with a divided cabinet. If he had known he was dealing with a united and enthusiastic cabinet, the whole thing would have been different and probably the bishop's objections would never have been pushed so far. Well, internal tensions may be commonplace in political life, but they rarely lead to the dismissal of a cabinet minister. What were Dr Sean McBride's views about the mother and child scheme itself? Oh, I was all in favour of the mother and child scheme, uh, all in favour of completely free medical services, if we could afford them. The only problem was that I don't think we would then or are now able to afford them completely. Uh, what I did feel very strongly about was that the underprivileged section of population 
uh, should receive completely free services. And the whole of this controversy, the whole of the split at Austin, uh, could, I think, easily have been avoided. But I think that uh, Dr. Pan was determined at the time to provoke a split in clan and also, I think, determined to provoke a split in the government and that he had conceived that it, this would be a good issue and that uh, it was uh, also a good issue to quarrel with the hierarchy. Uh, it was most unfortunate because it certainly delayed the application of a Mellonshire scheme. Uh, the whole thing could have been settled on the basis that completely free uh, medical, gynecological, and hospital services could be, would be made available to any family with an income of less than 1,000 a year then. That was 1951, which was, which would be about the equivalent of 10,000 pounds a year today. I felt that this would have been quite a good solution. Uh, indeed, I think I would object to uh, making completely free medical services available to people with an income of over 10,000 a year at the moment, uh, for no ethical reason, but purely and simply for the practical reason, that if you have to make completely free services available to the entire population, that then you reduce the standard of the medical services you can give, and that people with over 10,000 a year can well afford to pay their own doctor and their own or portion of their hospital bills, unless it's a very, some very heavy uh, treatment. So that uh, the whole of that situation could have been settled quite easily then, uh, on a reasonable basis, uh, if Dr. Valentine had been willing to do it, but I think he had been, he was determined on uh, proceeding to create a split, which he did very successfully. Do you think that the objections of the medical profession and the hierarchy were on the basis of there not being sufficient financing to provide a fully free scheme for all? That I'm not certain. I think that the probably the, the consultants in some room probably thought that they, it might affect their own incomes, and they probably objected to it on account of that. Uh, but uh, these issues were never gone into. Dr. Brown has been quoted as saying that the Cabinet took a firm decision on the question of there being no means test in 1948 at a Cabinet meeting. Do you recall that meeting? Uh, I don't recall a firm decision being taken on that. I don't even recall it being discussed very much. Uh, I think that we would all have been in favour, probably, of having no means test of having certainly a means test uh, with a very high ceiling. I think everybody in Capital quite agreed that as far as possible, uh, mothers and children of the lower income groups should receive completely free medical services. And I think we, at that time, the basis of the agreement, which had worked out with the help of the leader of the Labour Party at the time, Mr Norton, was that the 
ceiling would be uh, £1,000 a year, which would be the equivalent to approximately £10,000 a day. You said that you would accept the position of the hierarchy and that you felt that the position of the churches was, was one that had got to be looked at by political uh, parties yes. in, in drafting legislation and in passing legislation. Do you feel that the hierarchy were in a position to dictate to the government of the country at the time? No, not to dictate, but I've always felt that the representatives of the different churches uh, were quite justified in making representations to the government. And indeed, I received many representations from the representatives of the Jewish uh, religious bodies here, of the Church of Ireland, and uh, as well as, as the Catholic Church. But that naturally, a government would have to take into considerations into consideration the viewpoint of the representatives of the different religious groups. And that, of course, they would have to give probably greater weight to the representations of the majority church in the country. And that no government uh, would ignore representations made by the Irish hierarchy. So it's quite natural that they should have a viewpoint and they should express their viewpoint. Now, it's quite, that's quite a different thing from uh, accepting dictation from them. And on many occasions, I'm sure the government uh, did things which the hierarchy didn't wish them to do. And the hierarchy accepted that position. But I think that the hierarchy quite intended to express their views on these issues. John A. Costello led the inter-party government which had attempted to introduce the mother and child scheme. He was unequivocal in his acceptance of the hierarchy's word and tried to mediate between them and Dr Brown to achieve a compromise. Did his cabinet tend to accept the word of the bishops without hesitation? We didn't merely tend to take that attitude. We took it. And I think it's the correct attitude for any Catholic government to take. If we, if we, we believe as Catholics, and we believe at that, that time as Catholics, that you must have in politics and in statesmanship and in legislation and in the conduct of all affairs of the state, the principles of Christianity put into operation. And if we weren't told, as we were told, by an authoritative body in the Catholic Church, that a measure, if brought into action, would be contrary uh, to uh, morality and the teaching of the Church, then we were bound, in my opinion, I'd do the same again. And the other government would have to do it. If I could put it to you this way, Mr. Costello, in a parliamentary democracy, people vote for candidates in a secular democracy. Now, do you really think that, uh, that these respect, same candidates have a right to say we will accept the bishop's ruling as you... Not really do I say they have the right to do it, but in my view, they're under a duty to do it. And there's no question of secularity at all. The Vatican, the Vatican decrees are quoted and misquoted for all sorts of propositions that they don't bear at all. In my opinion, I give it with all reserve, in my opinion, it's not capable of the interpretation that you put on it at all. There is, of course, there's liberty of expression and there's the, in, in, in the church, but it's subject to the same implicit, if not explicit, uh, 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 limitation, if you like, as is in our constitution of the right of free speech, subject to public order and morality, subject to morality. But we were talking a moment ago about partition, Mr. Costello, and in that mother and child scheme, deliberately or accidentally, you handed the Ulster Unionists the finest piece of propaganda they virtually ever had, which they've been using from the famous pamphlet they published then, right down to the Reverend Ian Paisley in our own time. They're ent uh, they, they can have a present of it as far as I'm concerned. Uh, they can use anything they like about it. 
I can see nothing more appalling than the sort of stuff that Paisley is carrying out without the, without the help from the mother and child. He doesn't require anything at all. Obviously he can't say that we were in the hands of the bishops. The, the, some of the church gazettes wrote that about me that I was in the hands of the bishop. When you're a politician, you've got to put up with that class of thing, and that's mm. all rubbish. I do the same again and be subject to the same uh, pressures as I was before. But did you personally want Dr. Brown to resign yourself? I didn't want him to resign. And I tell you, what happened was, we had been told of this opinion of the bishops, it was brought to the attention of all the members of the cabinet who expressed their views on it. Dr. Brown didn't agree with it. And we said, very well, would you like some time to consider your attitude? And he said he would. We said, well, we'll adjourn the whole thing, what we'll do on this matter, until you have made up your mind what you want to do. We'll give you all the time in the world, any time you want. And it was adjourned then, to let him do that. Then, to everybody's astonishment, his own party told him that he had to resign. I never exercised my constitutional right to call upon him to resign. He resigned himself, having been directed to do so by his own party. And I have, I still, looking back, I still think that if things had gone on and been handled differently, not by my associates, but by his own party, that there might might well the whole situation might be very well resolved but of course apart from the uh, the point of view of morality and the bishop's view on that there was the strong very very strong feeling in the medical profession against this particular scheme the, 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 the doctors were general who thought it was a wrong scheme and a scheme that was contrary to all their ideals and all their, their principles so they were very hostile uh, views in the country about this scheme. Socialising medicine, if you like, it was very nearly that. Which was the more important, the views of the doctors or the views of the bishops? It all depends on the point of view. <laughs> <laughs> Which was your point of view at the time? Both. <laughs> Both. My point, I was, I, I, I was, I must confess, uh, strongly sympathetic towards the point of view. And I put it to Dr. Brown on one occasion, do you want to go down in history as the man who did a jo good job for the health of the country or as the man who beat the doctors? John A. Costello there talking to Dr. David Thornley on RTE's Seven Days programme over 10 years ago. In fact, Noel Brown and the Mother and Child Scheme have gone down in history as an important factor in the downfall of the first inter-party government. Two years later, the new Fianna Fáil administration introduced their own mother and infant scheme. How did this differ from Noel Brown's original scheme? J.H. White. The Health Act 1953 did um, cut down on... Dr. Brown's proposed scheme in a couple of important ways. Firstly, it was no longer free for the entire population. Uh, the richest 15% um, or so were excluded. Uh, secondly, uh, there was a rather drastic change of age in that the original scheme was intended to deal with children up to the age of 16 years. And now uh, it dealt with, with babies only in their first six weeks. Uh, so it was a considerable cutting down on what Dr. Brown had originally envisaged. 